The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Well, good morning. Hey, forgive me. I was supposed to send an email out last night because of the time change, but I have three reasons for not doing so. First is, I forgot. Uh, Second, if I remembered, we have smartphones. I mean, come on, we're not living in the dark ages here. Who needs a who needs a reminder? Oh, let's see, what's three? I forget three. If it comes to me, I can't remember. Anyway. Hey, let's let's pray together. If I if I remember that third reason, I'll I'll bring it back up to you, but um Let's pray together. Lord God, we, we gather to proclaim Jesus as King. To praise you for his resurrection from the dead. And for the life that we have in him. By your Holy Spirit. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is the head of this church. And so... We look to you, Lord. We look to you for all things. And we ask that you would bless us with the truth of your word. That you would make us into a people that that more and more desire to surrender our lives for the sake of your glory. We pray in the name of King Jesus. Amen. Okay, I remember. The last was, you know, it's not so bad to be early. Right? So... Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20. And remember last week, we did the first part of Acts 20, and there was that that interesting story about poor Eutychus, whose name means lucky or fortunate, who fell to his death. We shouldn't make fun of him, but fell to his death. While the Apostle Paul was preaching, so to help you out, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Not only in honor of God's Word, but to keep the blood flowing. So let's let's read. We're going to be finishing the chapter. Let's pick it up in verse 13 and follow along as I read. But going ahead to the ship... We set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there. For so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Asos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And the day after that, we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived Among you, the whole time, from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God, And of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus 
to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when they... When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well... This is, this is Paul's famous address to the elders at Ephesus. It's, it's instruction for the elders of the church. But I think more broadly, it also gives us a picture of what the church ought to be. The book of Acts really gives us this vision, doesn't it? Yes, it was the, you know, it was the first century, and sometimes it's hard for us to connect ourselves with that. It was a unique time where the old had not yet passed away while the new was beginning and and flourishing. You know, some things we read in Acts has created confusion within a variety of churches. Some things, I would say, don't translate to today because back then there there were apostles whom... Jesus was authenticating through, through signs and miracles. There was a purpose to those signs and miracles. Apostles, apostles who laid the foundation of the church and completed the word of God in the writing of the New Testament. So some things don't carry over. Today we're not, we're not meant to raise the dead or send out healing hankies. There aren't special people whose shadows have the ability to heal the sick. We shouldn't expect repeats of Pentecost. Because Pentecost, these Pentecost events that we've seen throughout Acts, they had to do with these various people groups and God communicating that his children were not only the Jews, but Samaritans. And also God-fearers and Gentiles to the whole world. The message has been spoken as the Holy Spirit fell upon all these people groups. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. And all who are in Christ are heirs according to God's promise. It's the beauty of Christ's church. The fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, that he would be the father of many nations. And so we are, we are like branches that have been grafted in. And soon, in AD 70, God would eventually judge unbelieving Israel, and there would be the destruction of the temple, which signals the, the end of that age, and that a new had begun. 
So remember, we're in this time of overlap. That hadn't occurred yet. In the new, we should aspire to be like the church that we see in Acts. Acts is, it's, it's made up of a lot of speeches and sermons. Peter and Stephen and mostly Paul. So a lot of speeches and sermons. And this, this is the only one given to a group of Christians. More specifically, it's to the elders of, of the church. But this morning, I want to I take a more aerial view and consider what we ought to look like as the church. And what we, what we see in our text, what we see are tears. We see a deep connection that encourages the building up of one another in the gospel. We see repentance, a message of repentance and faith. Last Sunday, we looked at Paul's ministry of encouragement, like oxygen for the soul. If you remember, this is the end of Paul's third missionary journey. He's spent the last three years in Ephesus, and now he's compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem and eventually to Rome. And on his way to Jerusalem, Paul first, he, he traveled back up through Macedonia. He visited those churches. He gathered, remember, he gathered all these financial gifts for the needy, the suffering church in Jerusalem. We thought about how our, our faith is meant to encourage others. But this encouragement is not only a matter of what we know and what we believe, but what we say and what we do. Our faith is word and deed, head, heart, and hands. And an example of this ministry of encouragement is seen in the Macedonian churches who, who actually begged Paul to take more financial gifts from them, even though they had their own afflictions and sufferings. They, they begged, let us give more for the needy church in Jerusalem. They wanted to give generously to them. So Paul, Paul encourages the church in Corinth. He stayed there around three months, and, and we read in 2 Corinthians how he encouraged the church in Corinth to give like these Macedonian churches are, in the same way. And when it was time to go, he ended up traveling by land, back up through Macedonia, and we're told he does this because he discovered the plot of the Jews who, who wanted to kill him. Probably wanted to board ship with him there in Corinth. He was going to set sail from Corinth. But they probably were plotting to board ship, wait till he gets out to sea and dump him overboard. So he heard of this plot. And instead of sailing from there, travels back up through Macedonia. He, um, he gathers with him what those representatives from the various churches. And he sends them ahead to Troas, meeting up with Luke and Philippi and celebrating Passover. And, and then they join everyone in Troas where arrangements have been made to set sail. It's in Troas that Paul gave that very long sermon. And poor Eutychus fell asleep and falls three stories to his death. And Luke describes this very encouraging scene in what Paul does, reminding us of Jesus raising the dead, reminding us of Elisha laying on that child and breathing life into the dead. The Spirit of God was with him. It's the encouragement of word and spirit. An example of, of teaching, fellowship, and community, head, heart, and hands. And this leads to his instruction to the leaders of the Ephesian church. But in getting there, just that little section beginning with verse 13, getting there, we see another brief example of Paul's heart for the people. Everyone else, they, they, they sail from Miletus, but Paul walks there. He, he walks from Troas, apparently because uh, headwinds, with the headwinds, it wasn't any quicker to, to sail there than to walk. So Paul 
likely took advantage of this time. He was with this church in Troas, and, and people wanted to hear more, and they had questions, and they, so a lot of them probably just traveled with him, and he could spend more time teaching them and spending time with them. And before uh, boarding ship in Miletus, and since he had, um, uh, Ephesus is, is what? It's about 20 to 30 miles from the city. So he had sent word to the elders in Ephesus. He, he, he had to board ship, so he couldn't take any more time going to Ephesus and visiting. But he sent word, hey, come see me off. I'd like to spend more time with you. So Paul addresses the elders of the church there. And um, so I want to look more broadly at this. Even though it's the elders to whom he's speaking... I want to look more broadly and I want to ask the question, what is, what is Paul telling us about the kind of church that we should be? What should we, what should we as a gospel-centered church look like? And in doing so, we're going to learn about, we're going to learn about truth, tears, and trusting God for the future. Hey, look at that. I finally did it. Pastor Brian did an alliteration. Yes. Um, okay, let's start with truth. Look at verses 20 through 21. Paul says, You know how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now I want you to notice the word pairs here. He says, I declare, I declared and taught publicly and from house to house, unshrinking and profitable. The first pair is declaring and teaching or or preaching and teaching. And this has to do with the importance of truth. This is not an exchange of, of ideas that, that shift and change according to the time and culture that we're in. It's a declaration of truth. God's truth. Truth that's, in, that's as unchanging as He is because it's His Word. But sadly, what we see with a, a lot of churches is a desire to relate, want to relate to what are the shifting sands of time and culture, to be progressive, wanting to fit in with popular opinions and beliefs of the day, to really to shrink back, to apologize, to twist God's word to be more palatable, less offensive to our culture. That's the temptation, and sadly, that's what we see, and that's what we must always resist. Preaching, preaching is a declaration. It's declaring truth, and Paul knows the temptation and battle against truth. Look down to verse 30, where he says, men will arise speaking twisted things, or twisting, or distorting the truth. So Paul's job and what he's passing along to the elders of the church, they've, they've, they've benefited by an apostolic leadership and now he's leaving and kind of passing the baton to them. They are the leaders of the church. They are the, the elders of the church. And he's saying there's a priority to preach and to teach truth. Now, one small point I'd like to make is that Paul's, he's not using synonyms here when he says declaring and teaching. Preaching and teaching, they're, they're not exactly the same thing. Yes, preaching is a form of teaching, but teaching is not necessarily preaching. Because preaching is declarative. Preaching or declaring is along the lines, think along the lines of Old Testament prophets who would say, thus saith the Lord. They would speak or declare the authoritative word of God. That's what 
That's what proclaiming, that's what preaching is. Now with, with them, with the prophets of old, it was an oracle of God that would, it would come to them. And God would speak through them. And this process is, is really the same as what we believe about the writing of the scriptures, isn't it? Think of it. Scripture, the Bible, is the word of God. But it was written through men. And Peter teaches us about this process by saying, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It wasn't, wasn't his idea. It wasn't his thoughts alone. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's God's words through them. That's the, the prophets in the Old Testament. And that's what's going on with the apostles as they, as they write the New Testament. So preaching today, it's a prophetic ministry in that it's the declaration of what God says in his word. But it's different in that God's word is not coming directly through that person and being written down. No, that part's complete. We declare the truth of what is written, what is complete. God's word is now complete. There's nothing new to be added. And a prophetic ministry today is the declaration of the treasure that we have in God's word. It's preaching. And as I said earlier, earlier there's, there's teaching within preaching. We need to rightly handle, we need to rightly interpret, interpret the word of God. But the church, and more specifically the elders of the church, are given the role, they're given the responsibility to, to declare this truth, to oversee preaching. So what kind of church should we be? Truth is at the center. And we're supposed to preach. And we should also teach. It's why we have small groups. It's why we have, at, at various times, we'll have some classes. It's why we always invite your questions. Biblical teaching is about truth, but the style tends to be more interactive. It's more of a, a dialogue, a discussion. Both, both are important concerning the truth. Truth matters. If you really want to know someone, truth, here's why truth matters. If you really want to know someone, you need to know the truth, don't you? If you want to know, if you want to know who I am, you can't just believe anything that you want to believe about me. You know, if, if someone came up to me and said, Brian, Brian, I, I like to think of you as a, as a funny mechanical engineer who has a vast knowledge of trivia. After saying, have you ever met Steve Murphy? I'd say, you know, great guy. But after saying that, I'd say, well, that's nice of you to say. And if you want to believe that about me, you're, you know, you're free to do so. Nobody's going to arrest you. It's a free country. But it's not the truth. If you really want to get to know somebody, you need to know the truth about them. Do you want to know God? You can't just believe anything that you want about God. How about yourself? Do you even want to know who you are? Seems like an interesting question, but we learn a lot about who we are by learning about God and what he says, who he says we are in his word. It has to do with truth. Think about it. The, the world today... The world today might tell you that your feelings, that your, that your fears and inability to connect and relate to people of the same sex, well, that that means maybe you're not really a part of that gender. That's what the world will tell you. That your body is not telling you the truth. The world's truth will tell you that you need to change your pronouns. That you need to, you need to align your body to your mind and who you think you are. That, that it's a, a problem of the body. That's what the world will tell you, who you are. It's a problem of the body and not a mental problem. 
Whereas all throughout human history, up until a, a, a couple of minutes ago, you would have been told that the problem, no, the problem's with your mind, not your body. And ultimately, this historic truth was grounded in the truth of the Bible, which says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, that we're made in the image of God, and that he tells us who we are through our bodies, male and female, he created them. The world's truth will say that you, you need to take some hormone blocks or blockers. You need, to, you need to have a surgery to cut off some body parts. And that this will make you happy and solve your problems. And of course, what we're seeing more and more is this is not making people happy. It's not keeping them from suicide. They're more suicidal because it doesn't fix the problem. It's not who they really are. It doesn't solve the struggle. Is that the truth? Or is God's word truth? Truth is important. If you want to know who God is and who you are, we're body and soul. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. Complex image bearers. One description is true and the other is not. Is God your maker? Or are you the product of evolution and every changing whim of society? The church is here to convey truth. And in doing so, we don't twist things to make them say what's popular. We declare and teach God's word. And another pair that Paul gives us is that he preaches and teaches in a way that's unshrinking and profitable. Or, or without hesitation, without fear and profitable or helpful. And that's a great combination. Unshrinking and profitable, helpful. Paul says, I preached and taught without shrinking back. I wasn't afraid to say the truth. And for him to say this, for him to even bring that up, what does it imply? It, it implies that biblical truth is always going to offend somebody somewhere. That's the implication. Believing it's true, believing it's true means that we believe it's profitable. Right? The truth of God's word, we, we want to be unshrinking. We want to be unafraid to, to tell people about it because we believe this is really helpful. This is what people need. This is what they're starving for. It's truly what people need to know and live by in order to flourish in life. Think about how the world criticizes the Bible as being constraining and restrictive. No, it's so people can flourish and benefit them. But to be unsh unshrinking implies that it implies that people aren't going to like it. The Bible will always offend. There's no city, no country, no person who you can bring biblical truth to that it won't offend them or upset them somewhere. It, and, and that makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense because we always hear people say things like, well, I, I can't believe the Bible because I find parts of it offensive. You ever heard people say that? I, I just can't believe the Bible. There's just parts of it that are offensive to me. And when we hear this, we should say something like, well, you know, that's actually a proof or a mark that it's true. Because if the Bible comes from God, that means that it's not the product of this culture over, over there or here. It makes sense then that it would offend every culture somewhere. But if it's not ultimate truth, if it's, if it's just the product of a particular culture, then that particular culture is not going to be offended by it. But that every culture at some point is offended by it, it must mean that it comes from God. Tim Keller gives 
the illustration of this saying, you know, if you talk with people, talking to this, this person who's offended by God's word, he, he says, you know, if you, if you talk with people from the Middle East, if you talk to them about what the Bible says about forgiveness, they'd find it outrageous. Because the Bible says that you have to forgive people who wrong you. Even, even if they don't repent, you have to turn the other cheek. And people in that culture are going to think you're crazy for not paying them back. In that particular culture, it makes no sense to them whatsoever. But when you tell them what the Bible says about sex and family, well, they say, okay, that makes sense. Now, if, if you did the same thing in Manhattan, where Keller ministered for years... He said that the reaction would be exactly the opposite. If you told a person in Manhattan what the Bible says about forgiveness, they'd say, wow, that's a, that's a really high standard. And they'd like it. And when you tell them what the Bible says about sex and family, they'd say, that's awful. That's terrible and regressive. For different reasons, both people say, I can't believe the Bible because it offends me. And so Keller argues, he argues, don't you realize how culturally narrow you're being? Don't you recognize how ethnocentric you're being? You're saying your culture's problems with the Bible are more important than their culture's problems with it. So he concludes, if it's from God, and it is, then it's going to offend you somewhere. I think that's a good argument. So Paul, Paul is unhesitating. He doesn't shrink back. Which means that it's the church's job to lift up the Bible, even when we know it's going to offend our culture somewhere. We can't shrink back from that. And more and more churches are feeling the pressure to not say anything. But in that pair, there's a, there's a wonderful balance, a right balance. We don't just unhesitatingly bash people over the head with the truth. No, there's, there's a motive. We want people to profit from the truth. Our desire is not simply to be arrogantly right. It's to be helpful. It's to be loving. As verse 32 says, it's the word of God's grace which is able to build up. In 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy to be sure to teach sound doctrine. And the word sound means healthy. We need to be a people who uphold biblical truth. But to what end? Is it just to be right? Is it to be superior or better? That's, that's what people think. That's a reputation that sadly we're building. No, it's to, be, it's to be profitable. It's to be helpful. It's to, it's to bring about health to our neighbors. And not, I don't necessarily mean physical health, though there's a connection. We're complex beings, aren't we? Our emotions, our worry is related to our thinking and wrong beliefs leading to stress that can have a terrible effect upon our bodies. So it's all connected at some point. Again, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. We're complex beings, body and soul, and God's word needs to dwell in us richly. Truth is profitable. It's helpful. It's sound or healthy for us to know who God has revealed himself to be. To receive his grace and to know that he withholds no good thing from those who love him. Oh, that's healthy. That's what we tell ourselves in the midst of suffering and trouble. God withholds no good thing from me. He works, he intends all things for good. I may not understand it, but this is the truth of God's word. As the church, 
It's our job to uphold biblical truth for the sake of blessing those around us, that they might know God and thus know themselves and what's truly, truly nourishing for our souls, what, what feeds us and what's truly beneficial. If we lack joy, if we're overcome with anxiety, what does this say about truth? We might stop and think, well, well, I know the truth. Maybe maybe I've forgotten it for a time and I need to remind myself. But we need to dwell on God's truth. We need to believe it. We need to meditate upon it. Get it deep within our heart and mind in order to produce healthy fruit that we're lacking at the moment. Truth is not... It's not simply knowing either. It's for believing and sharing in order to be profitable or helpful to others. So with this in mind, we should should be like Paul. Again, Paul said, follow my example. So when we see him, especially in Acts and the way in which he interacts and behaves, we should say, I want to be like that. I want to be like Paul not shrinking back from declaring and teaching God's word. But there's also some tears. Which means the church is meant to be a community. The truth of God is it's proclaiming, it's proclaimed, it's taught both in public and from house to house. We live in the We live in the most individualistic society in human history. For the most part, we just mind our own business. People mind their own business. We we build our fences and we keep to ourselves. Not getting involved with others. Living through COVID. Think about how that's amplified that. Living through COVID has only made it worse. It's stuck. It's changed the way we live in that more and more people, they just work from home now. They had to work from home, and now people haven't gone back to work. They work from home. They don't leave their home. They don't socialize except for, well, social media, which is not at all an open and vulnerable sharing of life, is it? When you really think about it. It's very controlled kind of sharing. A form of hiding that tends to put us in the best light. I mean, there's a place for it, but, but you're not going to really... You know, I think it's, it's interesting. People go there because it, they think of it as community, but it's not, it's not really community. It's too controlled to really be vulnerable. Paul's description of what the church ought to look like is it's community. He describes living among them and serving through trials with them, shedding tears. In verse 31, he describes night and day, admonishing, instructing, warning everyone with tears. Look at his description to the church in Corinth. He says, For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, with many tears. Not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. He's, 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 what he's describing here is how he previously wrote 1 Corinthians to correct and rebuke them over, over their division and sin. And Paul gives them the truth because he wants them to be healthy. He wants their health. He wants them to know the truth and live by the truth. He cares for them. His heart aches for them, and he shed tears out of deep love for them. And it's beautiful. I've seen it with some of you. I've seen it with some of you. I've seen you shed tears, weeping for people that you love, wanting their repentance, wanting them to embrace the gospel of Jesus. It's what we're meant to be. 
not just as... I don't want to minimize this, but it's church is more than us just coming together on a Sunday, hearing a message, maybe saying hello to a few people and then leaving. As great and important as it is for us to come and worship together, and we are told in God's word not to forsake this gathering, that we are to come and worship the Lord, there also needs to be more. This doesn't encompass all that the church is. There needs to be a deeper community. A little house-to-house sharing and teaching that involves day-to-day life and truly caring for one another. That's what we are to look like. Jesus, Jesus, in fact, prayed for this. Not Not just for the first century church, but he prayed this for us today. For those who would believe because of the word that that first century church shared. Because that foundation that they laid for us. In his high priestly prayer, Jesus, likely with tears, prayed, Father, I ask that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you sent me. Why? For the gospel. Unity. Unity. It is such a a massively important truth and challenge for the church. And it's it's not just a public showing. It's sharing life together. It's caring for one another to the point of shedding tears. It's our witness to the world so that, so that they might believe in Jesus. And sadly, what we hear from the world concerning the church, sadly it just tends to be the opposite of that. But our unity, our, our care for one another, our deep community to the point of tears, it needs to stand out to unbelievers. There's a, there's a God-ordained purpose in that. It needs to stand out to un- unbelievers. It needs to be weird for them, rare, unusual, unlike anything else that they know, so much so that it causes them to want to be a part of it, to want what God has graciously given to us in his church. It's a hard challenge because we're we're a busy people. Probably in 21st century, more so than any other. Technology didn't free us up. We're a busy people. We're, We're a private people. We're maybe too proud to shed a tear and be vulnerable. But it's the church that we see in Acts. It's what Jesus prayed would be true of us. This is why it's not about, okay, this is why it's not about, this is why we say this all the time. It's not about the food. We share a meal after the service every third Sunday of the month, and we say it really isn't about the food. And this is what we mean by that. We had a men's breakfast, and we're planning to do more of these more often. And the food was great, but it's really about the community. It's why we have men's groups and women's Bible studies and home groups. These are not, they're not just add-on programs that, they're meant for us to be a community, to live life together, to open up and share, to pray for one another. Truly, a part of what it means to be a church has to do with a deep love for one another, actually weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. And if you go through a hard affliction and your brother and sister respond in this way, it changes you. It'll give you a vision of what we're meant to be. It's good. It's good for us to realize that Paul was this kind of man. You know, maybe it's because of his great intellect. Maybe 
maybe his past sins. He was the persecutor of the church. But people tend to think of Paul as being harsh, stoic, being a teacher and preacher that goes around scolding people all the time. But no, that's not what we see. He cared to the point of working a side business because he didn't want to burden anyone. He taught every day in public and likely gave counsel going into people's homes. He served with great humility and heart. And we see the evidence of this in verse 37 where there was much weeping on the part of all where they embraced him and kissed him, being sorrowful because they knew they wouldn't see him again. It's a great example for us to follow. It's what, it's what our church should look like. The church is also to be a people of faith, trusting God with our future. Trusting God with our future. When there's suffering and trials in life, we're faced with a challenge. We're faced with a challenge concerning church. Do we continue moving in the direction that God has called us? When there's a storm cloud of gloom and doom and predictions of financial collapse and food shortages and, and even war maybe, and what do we do? Do we, do we splinter apart and isolate and hide and hoard? Or do we continue being the church that, that's dedicated to the preaching and teaching of God's truth and investing in each other's lives? I hope we've learned I hope we've learned to never shut the doors of the church again. To never think that we can do this from home or over a video feed. I want you to know, if there's ever another shutdown, we're not going to shut the doors of the church. We're going to care for one another. And we're going to respect one another and lovingly encourage those with different health concerns, not judging one another. We're never to be harsh. We're never to be judgmental. We're never to divide over such things. It's so shocking to me. It's so contrary to God's will to hear about churches who divided over such things. Because an, an essential part of what we're meant to be is united, loving, bearing with one another. Which means we're not going to agree on this stuff. We're not going to agree on everything. It's unrealistic to think that you're going to go to a church where you agree with everyone. No, God gives you wonderful opportunities to bear with one another. Bear with one another, declaring not only with words, but also in our actions, the grace of God. Being a witness to a watching world so that they might believe in Jesus and be saved. And for this to happen, we need to be open. We need to be available. In person, it can't shut down. We're called to worship God, to preach and teach and be a humble tearful, trusting community. Paul had, he had every reason, think about it, he had every reason to, to hide away and isolate for the sake of self-preservation. Verse 23 says that the Holy Spirit was telling him from city to city that he's going to be in prison and afflicted. This is not just a, a, a potential prediction of the news. It's the Holy Spirit telling him his future. It's a sure thing. And Paul's priority was the church. If it meant his comfort and security, even death, well, Paul said that the higher priority was that he continued to minister the gospel of God's grace, that he finished the race that God has called him to run. We don't know anything this certain and sure about our future, but the church is that high of a priority. It's more, it's more important than our comfort. 
more important than, than life itself. This, this was the attitude of the early church. And it wasn't meant to be unique to them. It's what we're meant to be. It's what we're meant to live out. So more and more, let's, let's work on resisting a 21st century American churchy kind of life. And instead, strive to be a people who proclaim and teach God's truth, who shed tears together because of our love for one another, and who trust God for whatever comes. Let's pray. Father, this this is so clearly who we're meant to be. And apart from you, we can't do it. We can do nothing apart from you. Clearly, that the church has survived until this day is evidence of your leadership, of your promise that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail in its attacks against it. Father, help us to see, give us a a greater desire to be like the church that we see in your word. And all of the busyness of life, help us to prioritize what your son loved and sacrificed himself in order to build. Thank you for each person here and the gifts that you've given them. Thank you for our elders and deacons, for each home group, for those who give of themselves to serve in music and teaching and setting up a place for us to gather and worship you. Grow us. Grow us in preaching and teaching and living out your truth. May we love each other to the point of tears and always trust you for the days to come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.